reading this morning's from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. <clears throat> In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In these days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Amen. We thought so far um, through Advent about Jesus being king, Jesus being a servant. And now we'll think this morning about Jesus being the son of of God. And that's not just about his identity, of course it is partly, but it is about the purpose of that. Why Jesus came as the Son of God on earth. And so I want to show you just three things in this reading this morning. A shocking visit, an awesome message, and a joyful reunion. It all begins with a very shocking visit of the angel, doesn't it? In verses 26 to 29, you can Look uh, with me on, on your sheet that you got as you came through the door. See, there's a question we might need to ask ourselves, to be sort of fair. Is the record of Jesus' conception and birth just all too neat and all too polished by the gospel writers? Is it all too sort of convenient that it all sort of seems to fit together like this? And so it's important to think about the genre of writing that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a gospel, not an audit. All the apostles wrote their gospels after Jesus' resurrection and ascension from a place of clear faith. 
The gospel writers, in their honesty and their humility, record that all the way along Jesus' life, up until his then death and ascension, they don't get Jesus. There's some moments where they're almost there, but they show that really, on the, on the whole, they, they don't understand him. In fact, John will say it was after he was raised and ascended that we realized who he was, and that we came back to all those moments, all those events, all those great words that he taught, and we finally understood what it was he was trying to do. And so all the apostles are writing these accounts, not as an audit as it goes along, but looking back afterwards on it with new lenses, now knowing who Jesus is. And though the Gospels are historical, that is, they record things that really happened, they're more than just history, they're more than just biography, because they write these Gospels to convince their readers, one, to worship Jesus if you don't, and then two, Keep worshipping him if you do, even though you're tempted in a world that is tough and challenging and not always welcoming of your beliefs, keep going. Keep believing this because this is real. So every gospel is always put together with a theological purpose. It's not just a biography. And so, particularly in Luke's gospel account here that we're reading from, he's wanting to emphasize to us in these these verses here that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Luke compiles uh, this writing together in such a way to show Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. We'll see that in a few minutes. And that's not reading into it. Because that's exactly what his intent is as he writes this after the fact, after Jesus has died, risen and ascended, knowing clearly who he is. And so Luke is doing what Matthew does in his gospel account, but doing it much more subtly. Matthew's much more blatant. He'll say after uh, all, all these sort of different events, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Luke is doing the same. He's just not showing you the workings out. He's sort of expecting that you might sort of catch on. But that's what we'll see here. And so he launches in here in the sixth month. And it reminds us, if you have a sort of analog Bible there or if on your device you can follow along, you can see the verses just before and see we've had the sort of narrative of the conception of John the Baptist. And so just launching off this next bit of the story by starting in the sixth month just reminds us that these two events, these two babies, these two boys' stories are connected and will be as they grow up. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city. That's being very generous. Actually, in the Greek, it could be city or town. And town, even town, would be generous to describe Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth really was a nowhere town. See, now, the birth of John, like I say, just in the verses just before there, to a priest named Zachariah serving in the temple in Jerusalem makes a lot of sense. A significant, miraculous birth offered to a priest, a servant of God who's ministering to the people, that makes a lot of sense. High-profile figure, someone that people would have known, people would have seen. Makes sense in a way that you'd think, wouldn't it? That they might have a child and they might go on to be of significance too. That's often the way it works, isn't it, in our world even today? But here, the promise of Jesus' birth, he's born to an unknown family, from a nowhere town. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed, that is, I suppose, engaged to be married, except in that 
kind of culture there, it's, it's something slightly more than engagement um, because there is a bit of a legal expectation that you really do follow through on that. Um, you know, in our culture, being engaged does, it like, it's a sign of commitment, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't always kind of end up in, in marriage, does it? A virgin betrothed to be married to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And it says something really significant of God's care that the parents of the Son of God, his son, are so extraordinarily ordinary that there is nothing more that can be said of them other than Mary and Joseph who live in Nazareth. There's nothing more you can say about There's nothing more noteworthy other than that little ending that Joseph just happens to be related to David the king. Although there's nothing particularly remarkable about them, what is relevant is that link to David. And that gives enough reason for them to be chosen. Because this means it's fulfilling a prophecy given. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9 that we read a couple of weeks ago and, and Matty preached on so well, we heard about that promise of a king who would come forever and would come from David's line. See, it shows us that God is intently interested with normal people. The virgin's name was Mary, we're told. This is the second time already we're told that she's a virgin. So we have to ask the question, I mean, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? We don't often sort of talk in these terms. Does it matter whether Mary really was a virgin? Do we need to believe that to still be able to believe in Jesus? This has been something that even Christian thinkers have wondered about. Rob Bell, in his book Velvet Elvis, says, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. And in his question is an implication that he doesn't think necessarily it is. So does it matter whether Mary's a virgin or not? Because surely this is one of the bits that's the hardest bit maybe to believe. Right? Well, all the rest of it may be simple enough, but, but that's the bit that's a bit challenging. And certainly for the people who are around Jesus, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. That's why even as Jesus comes onto the scene later in life, in ministry, they'll throw that back at him. Aren't you just the son of a Samaritan? Didn't your mum just have an affair? Does it matter? We said the Gospels are theological. So the point is important enough for Luke to have mentioned it to us twice already. Because it does matter that she's a virgin. We've heard that promise already from Isaiah 9. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It matters that Mary is a virgin. Firstly, 
It matters because it means that Jesus can fulfill the promise to Eve that the seed of a woman would save humanity. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, just after the fall and uh, sin has come into the world and it's threatening to break apart everything within the world. Verse 15, I'll put enmity, that is conflict, war, between you, that is humanity, uh, and the serpent between you and the woman, and between your seed and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The really unusual bit about that promise, the bit to sort of circle or underline is, her offspring. It speaks of the child, a promise, the redeemer, the saviour, as being Eve's descendant, not Adam's. Everywhere else, where there's speak of a miraculous child that is to come it's always spoken of and the natural cultural thing for people at the time was to speak of the seed of the father the offspring of the father Abraham's seed David's son but here it's the opposite Eve's son because the key link is being born of woman, but actually not so much being connected to men. The fact that Jesus is born to a virgin allows Jesus to fulfill that promise. And there's a second connected important reason here. Secondly, it matters that Mary's a virgin because it means that Jesus doesn't have an earthly father, truly speaking, and so he has not inherited original sin. Romans 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in some way, symbolically, theologically here, Jesus is not implicated in the same way in our sin. Because though he's born of Eve, and though Joseph is a good stepfather, he is not his paternal father. He's perfectly righteous, and so can offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And then lastly, and this is no paltry reason, it matters that Mary's a virgin because God said she would be. And it matters whether God's word is true. Because if you can't trust him in one place, how do you know you can trust him in any place? And how do you know what places you can trust him and what places you can't trust him? You can either trust him or you can't. Luke thinks it's very important that Jesus was born to a virgin. And so the angel says, greetings. In fact, actually, the, the word there, again, sometimes there's this reality of, of the Bible being translated from original language to English. It doesn't carry over sort of all the significance of it. The word there is, um, it comes from the root word for grace. It means be glad for grace. Oh, favoured. And again, that is a loaded word too. A favoured one is one who has received grace. Be glad for grace, the one who's received grace. The Lord is with you. Mary receives an extraordinary grace in that moment that's not earned. And yet it's a significant role, isn't it? There would be a danger of going too far and saying that there's nothing at all special about what God does with Mary. Of course it is. A significant role. There's a great picture here by uh, Sister Grace Remington. This is a picture of Mary consoling Eve. 
Again, going back to that promise that one would come from Eve's descendants who would come and would save humanity, who would redeem us from the curse. Be glad for grace, a one who has received grace. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. And that might sound like a strange reaction, but actually I think that often is the reaction when you encounter God in such a powerful, remarkable way that it's actually not comfortable in some ways. There's a right to be concerned here because it will be a hard calling for Mary. Mary and Joseph are shockingly chosen from obscurity to receive this special message and calling from God. But there's a message here for us too. Because it's easy to imagine that we might be unimportant, that we might be somewhat unnoticed in the grand scheme of things, and think that we couldn't possibly play an important role in God's plans. But God's dealings here with Mary and Joseph show how wrong that would be. There's a shocking visit, but then secondly, there's an awesome message. Verse says, the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Again, the weather is actually grace. You found grace with God. And the point isn't about the grace that Mary has within herself, but that God has shown her grace in his dealings. That favor, that grace of God here is linked to a specific action as well. For behold... Or see, look, because of. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The amazing thing about this birth isn't so much Mary. She is unremarkable. She's ordinary. Which is why it is amazing that it's Mary who is chosen. And that should encourage us. Because why wouldn't God want to use us in just the same sort of way? And then look at what we learn about this child who will be born to her. He'll be great, verse 32. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. So that Jesus' fulfillment of all the prophecies that were given, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, as we said, but also 2 Samuel 7, and the promise of God to David that there would be a king who would reign forever. David wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, no, I don't need you to build a house for me. I'll build a house for you, and I'll give you one who will make your name last forever, who will be the king that everybody has always wanted to have, and will never let them down, and will never die, but always be with them, and always bring them peace, and prosperity, and joy, and righteousness, and justice. And Mary said to the angel, the obvious question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? It's no small problem, is it? How will this actually happen? She's asking. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So that this conception is an act of God. We often think, you know, there's the phrase, isn't there, in insurance terms, the act of God. Usually when bad things sort of happen, lightning strikes a building or something. But here, this is an act of God in a wonderful, positive uh, sense. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament appears and is there, but it's all very fleeting. He'll appear and he'll empower people, but it's moments 
And then he seems to be gone. Think of the story of Samson. There's moments where the power of God powerfully comes over Samson. He's empowered to do amazing things. Samson kind of squanders that most of his life. But nonetheless, he's empowered in that way. David too, moments where he's powerfully filled by the Spirit. But then the Spirit goes too. What you don't see is, and what we have the privilege of as believers now, is the Holy Spirit resting and residing within us and staying with us and shaping our living beyond just moments into all of life. In fact, actually, before Jesus' birth, there's been 400 years where God has not spoke at all. Where God through his spirit has not empowered a prophet and given them a message for his people. Where there has just been silence. So now, just in this first chapter of Luke's gospel, we're already seeing numerous people overcome and overpowered by the Holy Spirit. John and Jesus from the womb, having the presence of the spirit with them. This tells us God is doing something unprecedented in his creation. Therefore, that is because of this miraculous act of God, this conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. It's worth noting why that matters to Luke. Why would he say that? Why would he put it in those terms? Therefore, because of this conception, the child will be called holy, the son of God. That matters because what Luke is doing is rooting Jesus's, for want of a better word, godness. Not in his behavior, but in his origin and nature. For Luke, Jesus wasn't a good man who became God because of his conduct. He always was God. For Luke, The fact that he's conceived by the Spirit is further proof that he is the Father's Son. And that's important because that becomes something that people debate in Luke's day. And so he's answering that. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The miraculous birth of Jesus indicates God is doing something significant, as we often see throughout the Old Testament. Think of the miraculous birth of Isaac, of Samuel, of Samson. But that there's two sets this period apart. It's not just that there's Jesus, there's John too. Your relative Elizabeth is also conceived. The one who was called barren. You have one mum who shouldn't be pregnant, really. And you have one mum who couldn't get pregnant, they thought. And both are. And think about that. Think about even in this story that situation for Elizabeth and for Zachariah. Think of the shame and the pain of that situation. And maybe you or friends or family close to you have experienced the pain of struggling to conceive. Deeply painful and challenging experience, isn't it? And it, it's a really tough journey to go through that. And there's lots of potential to feel shame, embarrassment, loss all along the way. But even worse, think about the culture here, where struggling to conceive children can be seen as being cursed. And think about how that might feel to have to carry that, to feel as though you have to 
explain that or, or defend that with people. To wonder what people may be thinking of you all the time. And imagine another layer of that, that how that might feel being a priestly family. Here is Zachariah, prominent public figure, priests in the temple. Wouldn't these be people that you ex- would expect to see blessed? Wouldn't these be people you'd expect not to seem to be cursed? Would it maybe be a question mark that would have hung over him and his wife? Why is it they can't conceive? Is something amiss? Is there some secret sin? You can imagine perhaps some of the gossip and some of the internalizing of that. And so God's big plans of redemption have a place to free this one couple. And so it tells us he sees you and he cares for you in just the same way too. Whilst he's unveiling and fulfilling all these grand plans, you don't go unnoticed with him. And why does God do this? Of this line here, this summary that Gabriel gives. For, why or because, nothing will be impossible with God. That's the strap line for him. There's a, um, an advert that Adidas was running a couple of years ago. Impossible is nothing. And this might be the strap line for the advert of this birth and of Jesus' coming, that this is all about showing in every way possible that impossible is nothing for God. Nothing will be impossible for him. And it links both those births together. And then look at Mary's response here as we finish this section here. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. What a prayer. What a dangerous prayer to pray. Let it be to me according to your word. It's not a prayer to be prayed lightly. The angel brings an awesome message and Mary responds with humble and vulnerable faith and expectancy. There's a shocking visit, an awesome message, and then lastly, there's a joyful reunion. And if you remember this scene here from Home Alone, favourite Christmas movie, it'll get another sort of wheeling out again this year. Christmas is a time of family reunions, some joyful, some not so. Uh, And so there's this classic moment where Kevin realises that he's left alone without his family, he's made his family disappear and suddenly turns to a smile very quickly for him as he realises this could be a lot more fun than it would have been being with them. This is not going to be one of those unhappy reunions, this is going to be a joyful reunion. Perhaps the kind of reunion that maybe some of you Scottish folk will be having with your distant recently reconnected French families as you sort of enjoy last night's results and revel in in England losing. Uh, Yes, no doubt you'll be enjoying that. If the boot were on the other foot, I would be too. Uh, There's a joyful reunion here. The introduction of Mary's visit to Elizabeth confirms again that for Luke, these two births are deeply and clearly connected. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Why does she go there? Because as a betrothed, as an engaged woman, she would have been expected really to have lived in seclusion until the wedding day. And as a young girl, just generally, 
She wouldn't really have been expected to travel within her own town, let alone sort of further afield. She'd have been potentially quite vulnerable um, in doing that. But she wants to see the evidence, doesn't she, I think? Verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah, that's the priest in Jerusalem, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the presence of the Spirit, again, empowering some of our protagonists and characters here. See, we were told that John would be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb, chapter 1, verse 15. And so now here we see some evidence of that, because John, even in the womb, is able to sense Jesus, the Son of God, there and rejoices in that moment. And Elizabeth, too, is filled with the Spirit as she recognizes God's calling on Mary, the significance of that child that she's carrying, and the significance of her own son's reaction. Talk about sort of mother's intuition, but this is something even beyond that. This, this is the Holy Spirit, really, that's at work here within them. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This might not be immediately evident, but what's happening is there's a reversal of, of social conventions here. Because Mary, as the younger... And as I say, from a very ordinary family coming into an older priestly family's home here, it would be natural for her to greet Elizabeth as a superior and, you know, to defer to her a bit. Uh, But now, because of the superior status of Jesus, Mary's son, that's flipped. And it's Elizabeth now who is the one who is deferring to Mary as superior. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She sees that she's blessed even to be visited by Mary. And so again, the focus here is the child, not the mother. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the body in my womb jumped for joy. We know that the ministries of these two will be linked. John certainly does that in the beginning of his gospel for us. But Luke shows that this was the case right from their conception not just in adulthood. And as much as they run parallel in their lives, John and Jesus, and we'll see this later, and this is how John presents it in his gospel, they run together, but Jesus always clearly surpasses. And in some ways, in an earthly way, you'll have friends or perhaps siblings like that, where there's that frustration. (laughs) You run along together and you are close, but they're always better than you. They're always somehow that bit further ahead, that bit further along. John and Jesus always run together and a parallel and their lives are connected and their courses run together, but Jesus is always clearly leaps and bounds ahead of John. Though John in his humility doesn't mind and he'll say, he's greater than I am. I can't even untie his sandals. And yet their lives will be deeply connected. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Believing the message of the angel as being God's message might seem easy considering the drama around it. You might think, well, yeah, perhaps I would believe that too if all of that happened. And yet, in other similar stories, others didn't. Think of Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. They didn't. Think of Gideon when God speaks to him. He, he doesn't. 
The thing of putting the fleece out again and again, that's, that's not a thing of faith. <laughs> that's a thing of doubt. If you believed God, you need to put the fleece out. But Mary believes. Credit to her. The work of God in the conception of these two babies produces this joyful reunion. And so we see already how Jesus comes to bring us joy. Close now, but when we hear this story, it's, it's almost too familiar in so many ways, isn't it? And so does it just maybe sometimes struggle a little bit to captivate us in the same way? Or is there the opposite problem? That it's almost just too amazing. It's too much like a fairy tale. Does that even matter? Well, if we don't feel captivated by this message, if we don't really trust it fully and rely on it, that will shape the way that we live. Because the point of Luke including this is that it would shape our living now for his original readers and hearers. And I think the point in all of this section of the story is two simple things, like Mary. To have simple, humble, vulnerable faith in what God says, that it will come true. And she's an amazing example of that. Number one. And number two, to have joy. Maybe even greater joy than watching England crash out of a World Cup. To have faith in what God would say and to rejoice. And Mary is a wonderful example of the both of those things. She is, when all said and done, just a woman. But she's a woman of exceptional faith and great joy and a great example to look to. Let's pray and then we will sing a closing song together.